This is Dennis Romani. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, uh, Rachel Harris. She is a PhD. Uh, she was in private practice as a psychotherapist for 35 years and uh, worked as a research scientist. Uh, she is the author of the book, Listening to Ayahuasca. Uh, Rachel, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Oh, thank you. I'm so pleased to talk with you both. Rachel, uh, first, in, in the interest of um, uh, um, public uh, information, Transparent. transparency, <laughs> yes, uh, I, w I just want the listeners to know that uh, you and I have been friends for, I don't know what, 20 some odd years, and, um, but it's not going to stop me from asking hard questions. Okay, I'm ready for you, Phil. <laughs> okay, let us begin with an easy one. Uh, um, you you were a, a psychotherapist in private practice for many years uh, on the East Coast, most in Princeton, and um, then um, at some point you decided to do research on and write a book about uh, the experience people have with ayahuasca. Um, Tell us what brought that about. What was the how, origin? How did that happen? <laughs> yes, yes. What was the yeah. origin? Well, you know, my history is that um, when I graduated from college, I went to Esalen Institute for their residential program. And so that means I was in a, a, a group of residential fellows for six months where we um, met for 50 or 60 hours a week. And the focus was mainly on meditation and body work. And we worked with some of the top therapists at that time. This was 1968. And then I remained on the staff um, for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, those are really my roots. Um, graduate school did not really train me. I, I, uh, I, I, I was sort of ahead of the curve having spent those years at Esalen. So when I went to graduate school, I uh, focused on research. I really switched out of clinical into research. Um, and so I had that kind of a dual background. And so th then all of a sudden, it, it makes a little bit more sense that I would find myself in a ceremony drinking um, ayahuasca in, yeah. in my later years. I kind of, sure. my daughter finished graduate school and I was ready to revert to uh, my 20s again. So you're you were a hippie scientist. Oh well, <laughs> is that one of the tough questions? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> now, now uh, Rachel, I have a a two part question. One is, uh, did you pursue or uh, get involved with ayahuasca uh, for spiritual reasons? And the second part of the question is, I've spoken to a number of people uh, who have uh, either done or experimented with ayahuasca and uh, ayahuasca ceremony and whatnot. And the uh, feedback I get is very mixed. Some people had very good experience. Some people had so-so uh, experience. And some people actually had bad experience with it or with the uh, shaman that they were connected to. Uh, and I'd like you to first answer the part about what was the motivation for you? Was it a spiritual motivation? Uh, and then uh, what you would say about uh, people uh, who... Uh, have a wide range of experience range, with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got the question. I, you know, I wish I could say I was spiritually inspired and I was very careful to choose what kind of ceremony I went to. The truth of the matter is I was living in New Jersey. It was the dead of winter and I was looking for a beach vacation. So I signed up for this retreat center in Costa Rica and it was on the ocean. I thought I'd get a suntan of sorts. And two days before I was supposed to leave, someone organizing this retreat um, called me on the phone and said, do you want to participate in the ceremonies? And I brilliantly said, what ceremonies? So I'm afraid that answers the question. And it's um, really an, a great example of do as I say, not as I do. I mean, I, I, this is not, a, I don't, I'm certainly not a role model because I really encourage people to be very careful where they go, to know exactly what they're getting into, to have um, good referrals for the shaman. And, and you know, you're going to drink a liquid, who knows what's in it? So, um, you know, my, the, my message is really be very careful, get good referrals. And then the truth of the matter is I did none of the above. So, um, you know, I, and I wish I could say I was called. I mean, some people report having dreams about grandmother ayahuasca calling them and, and they intuitively feel they're ready for it. I just really fell into it. And, and the best I can say, it was a great synchronicity. And um, that's, mm -hmm. that's really the personal embarrassing report. The other thing is there is such a wide range of experiences um, people report with ayahuasca. I've been in ceremonies where um, I've been uh, really, um, I, I don't know how to say, felt that uh, the, the medicine was really super strong and I, I wouldn't be able to walk to the bathroom and, you know, I was just kind of laid out. And watching other people have absolutely no reaction. I remember these were good friends of mine who sat there. They They were experienced, as you say, hippies from the 60s. They were experienced spiritual people, and they drank twice as much as I did because once they realized they had no reaction, they went back to have a whole second cup. I was already flat out on the mattress mm -hmm. at that point, and they were just bored. They had absolutely no reaction, and when I asked the shaman with the help of a translator the next morning, the shaman just shrugged and said, well, they weren't called. So there's great mystery for me, even with all the people I've talked to, about the, the wide, wide range of reactions. I'm, I'm very concerned to hear of some of your the friends that you know having um, bad experiences maybe with people leading the retreats, maybe legitimate shamans or not. There are stories of um, unethical shaman in the uh, jungle and in, and in the States also. Rachel, let's back up a second for the sake of people who uh, may be tuning in who don't know what we're talking about. It, can you explain to us what ayahuasca is? Yes. Where it's used, by whom, and how it's come to be uh, um, uh, something we know about and talk about in these days? Right. It's, a, it's literally a tea. So it's made from boiling two plants together. And those two plants are found... Um, wild in, in the Amazon basin, in the rainforest of Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador. And it's been used by indigenous people for 
uh, centuries. There's some debate about how many centuries, but for a very long time. And one of the reasons is it removes uh, parasites because there's uh, what they delicately call purging involved. People vomit and have diarrhea, so it removes um, parasites from the intestinal tract. Um, and also it has uh, um, uh, extrasensory uh, um, capacity to tell indigenous people where the animals are that they want to hunt the next morning. These are not exactly the reasons Westerners go mm-hmm. for um, to travel to the Amazon jungle to drink this mysterious... Which coffee drink. shop should I go to? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go way in the jungle. I mean, really, you're... you're you know, where I was in Costa Rica, you know, we, we didn't have a telephone or internet. We had nothing. If there had been an emergency, it would have been a boat ride and a, a, a jeep ride to get to a small town. It would have been hours to a, a decent city. So, and, and in the jungle in Peru, people are, and same in Brazil, people are pretty far out. So you don't really want an emergency. And, um, I, you know, it, the medicine was first discovered by anthropologists and ethnobotanists. They were the brave souls who drank whatever the indigenous people gave them. And then gradually, um, more people began to, more Westerners began to travel to Peru, mostly, to um, experience this medicine. And most of the people now who travel to Peru or who find ceremonies in the States are seeking psychological and spiritual healing. So it's a quite different reason for right. for um, pursuing this right. medicine. But Rachel, if I could ask, uh, is it legal to uh, obtain and use ayahuasca in the United States? Is it legal well, you know, in Costa Rica, what, Brazil? Yes, it's actually a national uh, treasure in Brazil and Peru. And uh, what about I think in the United the, States? What's the status? United States? Not so much as you might imagine. The plants are actually legal. I um I ordered one from Amazon.com to send to a friend <laughs> of mine <laughs> because she was not interested in the medicine. She was she's a great gardener, so I sent her an ayahuasca vine, and it's doing great. She lives in Miami, so it's tropical enough. But once you mix the two plants, the ayahuasca vine and the chacruna leaves, the chemical reaction between the two plants releases DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and that's what is illegal in the United States. It's a Schedule One drug, and that means it's um, dangerous with no medical benefit. Now, you, you do have to realize marijuana is also classified as a Schedule One drug, and Already we have medical marijuana in almost half the states. So, you know, our, our scheduling, categorizing of different drugs is, is not making mm-hmm. sense anymore. And certainly as we have more research coming in in the last decade or so about the use of psychedelics, we're, we're learning that they have very important therapeutic benefits. Speaking of which, um, the subtitle of your uh, new book, Listening to Ayahuasca, is, quote, new hope for depression, addiction, PTSD, and anxiety. Can you tell us what you base that hope on and what you found in your research? And, and maybe while you're at it, tell us how you went about your research. Well, you know, I, I ask so many questions that, um, you know, they were Western psychotherapy questions. And, uh, you know, there was not much research about how this medicine was really being used in the States. And so um, 
I did what is the what's really considered the first level of research, slightly above a, a survey, but I did it because um, I heard a voice. Now, this you know you didn't ask this, but I'm throwing this in. Um, I literally heard a voice after I had had a number of ceremonies. I heard a voice say, "Do the research," and that sort of brought all my questions together. And I realized I'm well positioned to do the research. I have enough background in psychedelic worlds. I had the research background, and I knew what clinical questions I wanted to ask. And so um, I began interviewing people just to sort of explore what are the questions I should ask. And one very intuitive female shaman told me, ask, um, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? And I just included that. I had a 16-page questionnaire, which you're never supposed to do. It's never supposed to be long. It took people hours to fill out. And they were um, very enthusiastic. They would, after spending hours, it was like a, a whole project to answer these questions. Then they would write me personal letters and give me their email addresses. There was a lot of enthusiasm because people wanted to be heard. They wanted to share I wasn't asking questions about the visions and the, the, you know, the exciting stories. I was saying, what happened to you afterwards? How are you different? How did you change your life? And so it was what happened afterwards? What's the, the clinical significance, the therapeutic benefit? And they wanted to talk about, about that. And so I I had 81 people completed the questionnaire for me, and then I interviewed another 50, and it was kind of a rolling admission of uh, subjects. It was just by word of mouth. And the criteria to enter the study was you had experienced ayahuasca once in North America. So it was really a a Western study about Westerners. And um, the therapeutic benefits, and these have now been replicated in other studies, is that people do report a lessening of depression and anxiety. It's uh, sort of across the board, and some of the the um, more, the harder science studies, the one the ones that are that have actual hard science variables, are finding that um, there's a, a serotonin that serotonin is increased in the brain for about two weeks or so after after a ceremony, and people report less depression, and then they report kind of a falling back, and this, so it's about every two weeks or so, they need to attend another ceremony, Mm -hmm. and that's actually, you know, there are Brazilian churches that use um, ayahuasca as a sacrament, so of course they don't call it a medicine or even ayahuasca, they, for them, it's their religious sacrament, and uh, those churches traditionally meet every two weeks. So they they intuitively knew that this was the time frame to keep keep this medicine in in the in the system. Right. Uh, Rachel, so, and, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say there. Are, you know, it's very hard to explain, but there are actually these sort of spontaneous what I I have the nerve to call miracle cures, where people had one ceremony and woke up the next day and said, "I'm never drinking alcohol again. It's a poison." And, you know, I I knew some of these people, and they were well Mm -hmm. on their way to getting into serious trouble with alcohol. And I have followed them up for five to seven years, and they are not drinking alcohol. They're not in trouble with it. So, you know, that's kind of a miracle cure, almost like a conversion experience. Mm -hmm. Other other people um, reported uh, after one ceremony and no others uh, a lifting of depression. 
So, you know, without the medicine continuing in the system, I, I don't know how to explain this, but it's reported frequently enough that it's worth studying more. Right. Rachel, uh, I'm wondering that some of the challenges you might encounter doing research on ayahuasca. Obviously, if you want it to um, benefit people, you, you need that. We interviewed uh, a while back uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Bausis, who's the uh, head psychologist at right. the New York University yeah. uh, research on uh, psilocybin. And with psilocybin, it's produced in a laboratory, and uh, the amount right. of psilocybin, everything is very well controlled. I would think with, with uh, uh, ayahuasca, the way it's being researched now, the amount of DMT and each uh, dosage and all would vary a lot. So uh, at some point, would it be uh, uh, worth, would it be helpful if these studies on ayahuasca could be done like the studies on psilocybin in a laboratory, very controlled uh, 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 circumstances so that you could uh, uh, get real hard science uh, looking at it. Not that the, the, the science is going to make people have better experiences or it's going to make it more beneficial, but some way, yes. uh, because I, I would think now uh, it, it would be very challenging uh, to get real research done. Well, you know how the, the research is ahead of us in uh, Barcelona and in Brazil. And are we okay? I'm hearing, yeah. I'm getting feedback. Um, the way they're doing it is they're using uh, freeze-dried capsules of the medicine. And um, there was an attempt to do that. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I guess. Can you hear me? Okay. It's yeah, I can. There, yeah. there was an attempt to use these freeze-dried capsules. And this is how the scientists, um, the Spanish scientists controlled for potency and dosage. And so MAPS, the, um, you know, the organization MAPS.org, multidisciplinary, right. yeah, uh, for psychedelic science. And so they were in the process of developing a study and they wanted to use authentic shamans. And um, the shamans took one look at this, these freeze-dried capsules and said, <laughs> we, will <not> work, <laughs> we will not work with these. The spirit is not in this pill. So, ah. yeah, the, this is going to be the, the, the slowest um, psychedelic to be researched because of these reasons. Right. So, so, you're re but, so that's, that would uh, uh, seem to be uh, put a crimp in, in any hope of um, researching them in a controlled way, the way you would research uh, other drugs. But yes. your, your research was... Um, uh, interview style, and you spoke to, you know, you, you asked um, clinical, clinically oriented questions to people who have had, who have taken the medicine, as you would put it. Um, right. Now, so the one question is, um, how would you gauge the long-term value of uh, th these experiences and um, how how long was was it between the time the people took the medicine and the time you interviewed them? And the other question is, um, <laughs> did you uh, come across much by the way of um, uh, unwanted or undesirable side effects? Uh, what we used to call bad trips. Uh, any uh, you know, uh, we, people would be concerned about the risks. Yes, absolutely. I had, I had no control in this study. That's why I say it was the, sort of the bottom floor, almost a phenomenological study, looking at what, what are people reporting. So I, you know, it varied 
um, how long ago people took this medicine. But this is really a finding across the board for all the psychedelics, that if somebody has an intense psychedelic experience, it remains very fresh in their in their system, in their mind, in their heart. And uh, frequently, and this has been shown with um, the psilocybin researchers, they report these experiences as one of the top five experiences in my life. Right. So um, these are very uh, powerful experiences that people can have with ayahuasca. Um, but these are some of the controls. I mean, this 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 is going to be a very challenging medicine to research with with any controls whatsoever. Um, I think there were other questions, but I want I want to talk about the bad trip thing because I got I got such good reports from people that I began to actively seek people who would talk to me about their bad trips and. And Dennis, if you have friends who would be willing to talk to me, I'm still interested in hearing from people who have had a bad experience um, from the medicine itself. Well, most, of I, what, I, most of what I've heard is um, stuff I've read or um, heard reported secondhand from people. I actually haven't spoken yeah. to anybody directly who's had that ex a bad experience, but I've heard from others who said it, it, it does happen. Uh, it so, can be challenging, yeah. yes. And um, so I did speak to um, a number of people, I mean, more than a dozen. And here's, they would describe pretty much a horrendous experience. And often people felt they were dying or just really stuck in their own um, neurosis. It, it took different, different uh, variations on the themes. But um, at the end of it, they would say, but I learned so much, I would do it again. Mm-hmm. And so I have a section in my book about my own bad trip. And, you know, I think I called it my good bad trip or something like that, where I learned a lot. But, boy, it was tough. I really thought I was dying. And, and, and it, my generalization is that people tend to have bad trips because it's connected to their, their central issues in some way. So what might be a bad trip for you might not be, you know, if I had that experience, it might not bother me. So, for instance, someone recently reported um, feeling really stuck, like he hit a wall in the experience, and there was no, no, it was like a no exit, an existential uh, bad trip. There was no exit. He hit a wall. There was no way out. It was as if everything was meaningless, and that was his bad trip. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad trip for me. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, he, he told me this once casually and I didn't even understand, I missed therapeutically how upset he was by this. It, he, he actually had to have a second conversation with me for me to recognize, oh, this was really traumatic for him because it really wouldn't have bothered me in that same way. Right. Well, so let, let I me, our, yeah, our let bad me, trips are very specific. Right. Let me ask uh, for, you know, people listening in that haven't had any experience with this, uh, what is the experience like? Do you enter into a dreamlike state? Is it a trance? Is it uh, hallucinations? Is it mood altering? Uh, is there a, can you, as best as possible, describe to somebody who's never had an experience of this sort what the experience is like? Well, you know, the, there are a lot of YouTube attempts to um, dramatize what the experience is like. One of the consistent things is people see uh, almost like fireworks, beautiful lights, different colors, different shapes. Uh, but the range of what people experience is really uh, 
quite broad, broader than any of the other psychedelics as I understand it. So people can have a shamanic experience where they feel um, they encounter a giant snake or have to jump into the mouth of the snake. I mean, people have those kinds of experiences with animal allies and, and really shamanic imagery. Um, other people have more psychological experiences where they report reliving a childhood trauma or watching a childhood scene <coughs> from their own life, almost as if they're watching a TV program. So, you know, this is really very broad range. And, and other people, and I have a lot of these experiences, where I, I almost feel like there's a, an energetic house cleaning going on, where little elves or little people come in and, and scrub my heart chakra clean and sort of like polishing the heart. So, y you know, you, you never know what you're going to get. And you don't really exactly know what the impact will be in your life. Um, I sat with one woman in ceremony, and she was experienced. And and the next morning, she reported nothing happened. This is the first time for me, absolutely nothing. <clears throat> I didn't see anything. I had no no change in consciousness. You know, no no visions. Um, and then driving home the next day, the next afternoon, she said she had to pull over because tears were streaming down her face, and she was um, in the midst of a conversation with her sibling um, and trying to work out a problem. This was all going on in her head. There was no phone call. It was just in her head. And she said she pulled the car over and um, did this sort of therapy session with herself, uh, communicating with her, her sibling. And then when she got home, she actually called her sister and had a, a reconciliation. So... I mean, how do we explain this this extreme range of of experiences and responses? It's uh, the broadest that I know of. Interesting, um, Rachel. You've been around uh, spiritual circles for uh, uh, decades. You've you've known people um, as I have who are on many different spiritual paths. From your experience, how does the uh, ayahuasca, uh, well, experience that people have, how does that compare and contrast with um, spiritual or mystical experiences uh, as reported in uh, all the other traditions? Well, you know, I go back to, I think it was Houston Smith who originally did this research in the 60s when this was the question, is a, is a drug-induced mystical experience the same as one that's earned or even just spontaneous mm -hmm. and and the you know the the little bit of research um that was done back then showed that people could not differentiate the source so um there are also mystical experiences that people report after well during an ayahuasca session and then afterwards they say you know it changed my whole cosmological outlook, my sense of being a part of the universe and, and, um, that we were, that there's a great unity and, and, uh, people report a kind of a spiritual ecological attitude toward the planet and, and nature. So, um, there really is a spiritual shift that people report. Um, I, I, I'm not an expert in, in evaluating spiritual experiences to know, 
does this make a person more spiritual? I, the, o- the only thing I've come back to, because the issue of discernment, which I think is close to what you're getting to, is, um, is a very uh, challenging question. And, and it's, part of it is, is this just another experience, or does it actually make the person more um, spiritual in their life? And, and I, it was, again, Houston Smith who said a, a spiritual experience is not necessarily a religious life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always drawn back to the question of, does this, does this make the person more empathic and um, better behaved, more ethical, and uh, more heart-centered? and more capable of love in their life and, and how they influence others. So I, I go back to sort of the basics. And how did, how did, what are the answers to those questions in, in your research? Well, you know, it's the same as with every spiritual discipline, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Some people really do become more loving and more ethical, and some people, as we know, are as badly behaved as ever. And that's not news to any of us, (laughs) except that, you know, I still have this naive sort of thing that, well, you know, they've been in lots of ceremonies or they're a spiritual teacher of some sort and they should really be living an enlightened life. And then I'm always crushed to find out, Mm. you know, what was that book, you know, the the shoes outside the bedroom door. Uh-huh. You know, there's a long history of gurus behaving badly. Right. Uh, let, let me ask you, Rachel, uh, how relevant is the shaman to the whole experience? Because I've also heard it said, I've heard different uh, takes on it, that some folks think that the shaman is irrelevant. It's what you're drinking that causes the experience. And the, the shaman and the ceremony and all are, uh, you know, nice, but really have nothing to do with the experience. Or does the shaman take a much more significant role in interpreting or guiding the person through it. Well, you know, I I want this the whole ritual use of ayahuasca is is quite different from how we westerners have used other psychedelic drugs and and we're not used to uh, an indigenous ritual or a spiritual ritual. We're we're, cert- we're certainly not used to shaman. And it's a little mysterious what they do. I can't say that I understand it, but I want Westerners to have respect for the ritual as a whole, and that does include the shaman and the songs that the shaman sings and the energy work, the healing that the shaman does, even if we don't understand it, Mm -hmm. that this is, you know, would we separate church services and separate out the hymns from, from the Bible reading and say one is more important than the other? They it's sort of a, a, a holistic experience, and I, I hope that we will um, maintain respect for the, the whole of the ritual ceremony. Mm-hmm. That, that brings up the question uh, that uh, the term that has been used in um, uh, psychedelic research settings for decades now of set and setting. Can you, right. can you address that in this context? Yeah, well, you know, the one thing I've been saying about setting is I want those of us who are attending these ceremonies, I want us all to be very cognizant to never leave anybody alone. And uh, certainly that's part of the harm reduction movement in psychedelic work at 
festivals and that sort of thing, that um, the best thing is to have uh, people there, helpers there to to accompany someone if they go to the bathroom or they want to go outside to look at the sky, that nobody is left alone. And that so that the setting needs to be very safe. And the shaman, of course, needs to be a safe shaman. And that's not always true. Mm. And we need to be very careful mm. about that. I, I do want to acknowledge, you know, one other experience I've had recently in an interview with someone where he was saying he went, he's been going to about half a dozen ceremonies and, and I, I asked about the nature of the ceremony. He said, oh, yeah, we have a DJ. And it was all I could do to keep my mouth shut, uh, a DJ. That's mm. not exactly an authentically trained shaman. Yeah. And yet he reported really important psychological and spiritual changes beginning. And so I was really um, humbled by that, that, right. you know, I, I would like to be much more esoteric. And yet... He was still benefiting, even with this canned, you know, DJ music. So I, we don't know enough of what does what as part of the ceremony. But I think I still, I, for myself, I respect the wholeness of the ceremony. Right. It's like uh, doing uh, a yoga class to hip-hop music. You can still derive benefits, but uh, <laughs> not everybody would agree that uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, Rachel, uh, one yes. final question, and that, and that is for me, and that is... Uh, where do, you, where, where do you see this going, or where would you like to see it go in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Well, you know, I, I have to say I, I, I hope for more research, and I hope Americans can find a way to build on the research that's really underway from um, Spain and Brazil, since they're ahead of us. Mm -hmm. I hope that we can work with those scientists and and bottom line is, I hope for the research, just as the other um, psychedelic researchers do. Great. And and what are what is the likelihood of that kind of research uh, developing? A and speaking of the future, there's already uh, comedy being made of the trendiness of people. Uh, going, uh, you know, native and taking and having <laughs> ayahuasca experiences and right. I, ayahuasca vacation packages and so forth. Um, are do you have any cautionary remarks about any of that? And um, if you were, if you were in charge of the ayahuasca future, <laughs> oh uh, boy, <laughs> what would you say? You know, I. Um, it's 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 really irrelevant what I would say because I would say you know let's slow down on some of this, but that's not going to happen obviously. I mean I I hope of course that this is not a replay of the '60s in in mm. any way. I understand it's kind of a hip new thing for some people. A useful but, um, message. A useful <laughs> message on the on at the uh, eve of the 50th anniversary summer of the of summer of love. Oh my goodness, let's not do that again. <laughs> yes, I hope we can slow down and get uh, good research to support um, ways to use these medicines in, in therapeutic and spiritual ways for all of the psychedelics. Very good. Rachel, Any final you. words from your side, Rachel? And we should remind people that the name of the book is Listening to Ayahuasca published by New World Library, and I'm sorry, yes, New World yes, Library. Yes, that's right. And, and um, 
uh, Rachel uh, can be found at uh, listeningtoayahuasca.com. And uh, you have your own website somewhere, or is that it? That's that's the website for the book. And I, okay. I put on presentation. So, for instance, I've just put on the website the presentation that I did at MAPS just a few weeks ago. Wait, Very and, good. And Ayahuasca is spelled A-Y-A-H-U-A-S-C-A. So uh, listening to Ayahuasca, the book, and uh, listening to ayahuasca.com website. That will have that posted up. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you so much.